Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by ARC. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by ARC or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by ARC to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of ARC Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Well, welcome everyone uh, to a very special edition of FYI, For Your Innovation. We have uh, a special guest today. Um, Given everything that's going on in the digital asset space, uh, we can think of no one we would like to have more on our podcast today than Commissioner Caroline Pham. Uh, from the CFTC. So before we go further, I know that the commissioner would like to issue a disclaimer and we'd love her to uh, give you a sense of her bio. So commissioner. Well, hi, Kathy, and thank you so much for having me on this podcast. I was able to catch a couple episodes over the weekend, and I'm just thrilled to be on. So I'll give my standard disclaimer, which is that the views I share today are just those of my own in my official capacity as a commissioner and do not necessarily represent that of any other commissioner or of the CFTC. So with that, I should probably tell you what is the CFTC and a little bit about my background and how I came to be a commissioner, which I'd be happy to do. So the CFTC is the United States Commodity Futures Trading Commission. It is an independent financial regulatory agency, and it is structured just like the SEC. It is comprised of five commissioners, uh, no more than three of whom could be from the president's party. So it is a bipartisan commission. And in many ways, you can really think of it as like a board of directors, which is probably much more familiar to your listeners. There is one of the commissioners who is appointed and designated as chairman and carries out the executive and administrative functions of the agency, including, importantly, setting the policy agenda and calling meetings of the commission. And something that people may not always realize is that the commission, the body of the commission, is the head of the agency. And so no agency actions like rulemakings or uh, orders of registration or enforcement actions can happen without a vote by all five commissioners. Uh, And what does the CFTC do? We oversee the derivatives markets, which are the largest financial markets in the world. I think uh, the last statistic I saw was perhaps five, 400, maybe 400 trillion notional in the derivatives markets. And that's across all different kinds of underlyings across all asset classes, whether it is uh, commodities, of course, uh, or rates of other fixed income products, um, you know, physicals, uh, synthetics, uh, you name it. It's probably something that we would oversee if you could put a derivative on it, although there is a little wrinkle when we get to the SEC jurisdiction piece, so I'll save that for later. 
And uh, so I'm pleased to say that I was, like my fellow commissioners, appointed by President Biden and confirmed by the U.S. Senate. Um, the other four commissioners that were uh, appointed alongside me were all confirmed unanimously. And I think that's a pretty a pretty special uh, accomplishment in this day and age. And before I was at the CFTC, I've had a career in both the public and the private sector. So I actually have been almost a student as well as growing up in times of financial crisis. I think that might be a dubious achievement, but but so it is. So when I was in law school, I not only worked on uh, a number of cases over the savings and loan crisis and the bank failures that ensued from there, and importantly, whether or not the government could be liable for the bank failures, for causing the bank failures by passing a law that changed how you treated regulatory goodwill uh, for capital purposes. Uh, I also was living through the great financial crisis in 2008 and also worked on both the policy as well as the implementation of the Dodd-Frank Act. I was a visiting fellow at a uh, GW University think tank, uh, the Center for Law, Economics, and Finance. Um, I worked at different financial federal regulators. So after spending the summer after my one-all year with the judge, working on those um, savings and loan crisis cases 20 years later. Um, I then was in enforcement at the CFTC and the SEC, as well as enforcement and compliance at the OCC, which is the bank regulator, uh, then came back to the commission and worked with uh, Commissioner Scott O'Malia, which is actually the first time that I became exposed and, and looked at the regulatory treatment of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. That was in 2013. Uh, after my commissioner's term was over, we all sort of are like senators. We have our own personal offices. And when we leave, our staff goes with us. So I then joined Citigroup, where I worked in a number of different senior roles, uh, global head of swap dealer and Volcker compliance, deputy head of global regulatory affairs, um, head of capital markets, regulatory engagement and strategy. And then finally, in the uh, institutional clients group business development team as the head of market structure for strategic opportunities. And throughout all of this, I think starting in 2016 is when I actually first started working on crypto uh, in the private sector at City, looking at it from an emerging risk perspective, looking at it from a compliance policies and procedures perspective, working on product development and regulatory strategy with different teams, working with City Ventures in reviewing uh, potential strategic equity investments, as well as uh, other investments in blockchain and digital asset projects. And then finally was able to completely focus on that as well as other new and emerging products and markets such as ESG uh, in my last role on the business development team. So I've been pleased to take all of that different experience from, from both sides, uh, both the public and the private sector. And importantly, that I actually worked with clients and with other stakeholders on the actual markets and products where you would deploy blockchain technology, uh, looking at alternative assets like Bitcoin and so on. All right. Uh, so you've seen regulation from all kinds of angles, which is uh, really important in this day and age. Uh, with me today, for those who don't know Angie Dalton, Angie is the CEO of Signum Growth Capital. And uh, Angie is a consultant, uh, an advisor, uh, to ARC, our venture fund, and really to the entire organization. Uh, and uh, one of Angie's specialties is convergence, the convergence 
between gaming and blockchain technology, interestingly. Uh, so I, I wanted to have Angie on because we actually met Commissioner Pham together at a Christie's conference of all places. And I was on the panel right after Con Commissioner Pham and heard her talk passionately about uh, the potential utility cases uh, or the utility of blockchain technology in a in a very um, uh, excited way, meaning the the hope and the promise. And I thought, wow, this is a regulator uh, talking in <laughs> talking this way. And I thought I have to get to know her. And so uh, here we are. And Angie was at that conference as well. Uh, so, um, Angie, I don't know if you want to start out with any any of your own background or if we should just launch into uh, the topics at hand. I think we should launch into it, Kathy. And I think it's, it is pretty interesting that uh, Commissioner Pham and I both have, we share passions for blockchain, gaming, and regulation. Not many people have those three. <laughs> <laughs> Especially the third convergence, right? And and that's why it's really important to do uh, this kind of an FYI, because we need all of them to work together or, or it's not going to work. And so um, I, I guess maybe the first question to ask you, Commissioner, is um, the CFTC's general approach to, to crypto regulation. Um, uh, you've stated that blockchain technology can be used to make many financial services much cheaper and more efficient uh, to deliver to retail. Uh, we know that. Um, but uh, in the context of what I just said about your presentation at Christie's, we'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about that. So one of the things that is very special about the CFTC, in which I feel very privileged to be able to be a commissioner here, is that the CFTC sits at the intersection of the financial markets and the real economy. Because if you think about the markets that fuel the global economy, we are talking about market fundamentals, supply and demand, whether it's supply and demand for gold or other precious metals, for energy like oil or natural gas, or for interest rate uh, risk management or other different kinds of uh, financial index products. So when you think about what is going on in the real economy, what are the serious challenges that we're facing today from a macroeconomic and particularly a geopolitical perspective? How can the markets function most efficiently to allow for risk transfer between those who want to hedge their risks and those who want to speculate and take the other side of that trade? And so in our markets, I like to take the classical approach, which is that we have hedgers and speculators in our markets. And I think that really drives home the importance of being um, aware of the risks that you're taking and why I like to say that uh, we do not really um, regulate or oversee in investment, although certainly people can have um, futures and derivatives products as part of their portfolio, but it should not be thought of as sort of a, a sure thing. No investment is a sure thing. And so I just think that aspect of it is important. So the CFTC, being a market regulator, uh, what we're here to make sure is that the exchanges and the clearinghouses have in place robust rule books and risk management so that we have, again, fair and efficient markets that promote responsible innovation and fair competition. It's actually written into our statute. With that in mind, it is not so much what people are trying to list. 
but it's making sure that what they're listing and the markets that they're creating and the products that they have are not suspect to manipulation, that there are fair uh, disclosures and clear rules for these products. But who are we to judge if people want to all of a sudden create markets in some kind of new, uh, maybe a rare earth mineral or uh, in carbon offsets? or in Bitcoin or other uh, crypto assets. So I think that aspect of it is very important. So when we approach any kind of new or emerging asset class, again, you have to start from the premise of, can we make sure that we understand the risk profile or the risk uh, aspects of this uh, product or of this market? And can we make sure that we have fair rules in place for conduct, to protect against manipulation, to ensure transparency, and so forth. You know, uh, before uh, I hand it off to to Angie, it's been very interesting since, uh, and I know we were going to get to this later, I may have to hop off early, so I just wanted to make sure that we get to this one. Um, uh, So we've just had the Spot Bitcoin uh, ETFs approved, all 11 of them. Uh, ARC was one of them, full disclosure. Um, And, you know, Chairman Gensler on the day of approval effectively said, look, we're approving the ETFs, but we are not blessing the underlying here. And I found that very interesting, uh, but but not surprising given his history. Your uh, chair, uh, uh, Commissioner Benham, recently after, after the approval of these ETFs, said something somewhat similar, but I think for a different reason. Um, He was talking about the need, if I'm not mistaken, but I'd love a clarification, uh, for for legislation, which is not what you do. But again, we need the executive, the judicial, and the legislative branch. Did Did I interpret him correctly? Chairman Benham has supported legislation that would give the CFTC greater authority to actually regulate the spot market for Bitcoin and other digital asset commodities. Okay. And then just one follow-up then. Um, So not sure if the answer was uh, legislation, but uh, I think everybody agrees that the legislation along the lines of uh, the derivatives legislation, right, that, uh, that came out in the day, which really was a compromise. It was taken all the way to the Supreme Court, if I'm not uh, mistaken, and was a compromise, um, uh, allowing both SEC and CFTC oversight. Is is that right? The, that is that the kind of legislation. So the CFTC and the SEC have um, often had to clarify where the jurisdictional lines lay, because one of the things that's interesting about our laws in the United States is that pretty much everything is a commodity uh, that you could have a derivative on, except onions and movie box office receipts. So think what you may about the uh, the industry associations for onions and for Hollywood. <laughs> and so with that... Um, There has often been, like I said, the CFTC and the SEC getting together, issuing rules or other things that would clarify, uh, of course, um, what the jurisdiction is. The last big piece of legislation that created clear lines between the SEC and the CFTC was Dodd-Frank. And so uh, even though security is a commodity, the SEC has exclusive jurisdiction over securities. And then the CFTC basically has regulatory touch points with almost anything else. And so I think that's why... 
Um, if you think about the nature of the securities markets versus the real economy or versus um, any type of uh, physical or, or commodity market, FX market or rates market, et cetera, again, the the goals and the objectives are different. One is risk transfer. The other is capital formation. And so that's why I have found it very important to distinguish, coming back to the Christie's example, between what are commercial activities and what are financial activities. You can have marketplaces for anything. Amazon's a marketplace, peer-to-peer marketplace. eBay's a peer-to-peer marketplace. Those uh, marketplaces could not function if they were regulated like securities exchanges. That just doesn't make any sense. That's one reason why I think it's important to distinguish between commercial activities, artists, for example, and other creators who are using NFTs to create uh, value or uh, corporates who are using utility tokens to promote and enhance customer engagement, just like a modernized rewards program who doesn't love their rewards miles or their hotel points. Uh, So those are some important distinctions that I've said and that I've made in the past. Um, As to, I think, what is your big question? Do I think that there needs to be legislation? Well, uh, Congress is basically one of my bosses amongst the American people and the president. And so if Congress passes a law, I will faithfully execute it. But I do think that there's a lot of tools that uh, regulators can use today in order to make sure that we are protecting our markets and protecting the public from, again, fraud, abuse, and manipulation. And interestingly, one of the things that I've um, often advocated for when you think about the market structure for spot Bitcoin or other spot uh, crypto assets, I actually think that what you're seeing is a dealer market structure. It's not really exchanges that are anonymous central limit order books. And so that's why I've said in previous statements that I think that uh, similar to the different kinds of frauds and risks that you see in retail foreign exchange markets, markets, which the Congress gave the CFTC the jurisdiction over and created a retail foreign exchange dealer registration and oversight regime, I think we should have something similar to that for Bitcoin and Ether and other digital asset commodities. Great. And since you mentioned artists, uh, I'm going to hand this over to Angie. Thank you, Kathy. I would love for you to expand on the non-financial use cases and your concept that you've been very articulate in your description of utility tokens and the role that enterprises can play. And I would love for you to expand on that and then go into the regulation of those. Where would those land in terms of regulation? This is actually one of my favorite things to talk about. So um, I'm really glad that you bring that up because I think not enough people are talking about it. If you think about it, from my perspective, The tokenization of financial products and financial services is kind of boring. (laughs) It's pretty straightforward. You have seen the international regulatory community come together and say, same activity, same risk, same regulation. That seems very common sense. And I'm sorry, but if you're touching money or banking or markets, you are going to be subject to some kind of regulation. There are so many concerns that um, are out there around people, first of all, safeguarding people's money and assets. Uh, Second of all, around illicit finance, that I just do not think it is realistic for people to think that you could be having uh, the transfer of money, uh, that you could be buying or selling or trading or or producing or structuring financial products and have it not be subject to financial regulation. So um, whether it's a banking or payment uh, product, whether it's uh, capital formation or whether it's risk transfer, those things are all going to be uh, under appropriate place in the financial activities lane. 
But when we get to the commercial activities, this is where I think it's very exciting because I spent a lot of my time um, at City working with clients, uh, working with also startups um, through my work with the City Ventures business. And so what's interesting is that there is no shortage. I truly believe that there is no limit to the breadth and the depth of human innovation. I mean, I was just speaking uh, in Davos at a Filecoin Foundation event where they announced their partnership with Lockheed Martin to actually use what they may have in jest called the Interplanetary File System, IPFS, to actually use it to uh, shorten the length of time it takes to communicate between um, either different satellites or the International Space Station or the Earth to space and vice versa. That just seems like something out of the you know, science fiction books that I used to read when I was a little kid and and how incredible and how amazing. That's why I get passionate about it. You talked about gaming. This is something where, you know, my brother works uh, at a game studio and who didn't grow up around, you know, my generation with a Game Boy, uh, a Nintendo, uh, a Sega, um, an Atari, if you want to go way back. So when you think about the fact that for uh, years and years and years. I think gaming is a $200 billion industry. Uh, those of you who play games either on your phone or, or on a station or, or uh, using um, even uh, the Quest or some other kind of um, VR, AR headset, you can do activities in the games to generate points or gems or coins or what have you, and use them to buy in-game assets. There are entire gaming economies that are there. And I just think as you look at, you know, our children and, and our children's children who are spending an increasing amount of their time, whether it's work, life, play, uh, school, study, a multi-layered, multifaceted, both in the physical world with a digital layer. I always like to use this example where if you go to any art museum, I've been very you know, fortunate, I love going to art museums, um, even uh, the Louvre, right, or the Prado, or you know, the Met here in New York City, there's a QR code that you can scan with your phone and use that to deepen and enhance your appreciation of the art that you're looking at. To me, that is actually an example of the metaverse. Uh, and that's where Web3 comes into play because, again, sort of taking this forward in, in games and in gaming, you have the, the transfer of these digital assets, in-game assets. And as we sort of begin to see the, the continuing almost the gamification of life, and I don't mean that in a negative way, I just mean that we are able to transact and to interact with each other and with communities in new ways through um, these digital layers, uh, the technology that underpins that is going to be so important. Again, thinking about uh, moving from the QR codes, um, if that QR code is linked to a token and that token happens to be an NFT and that shows, you know, that you checked in at, you know, five Starbucks and uh, then you're going to get, you know, your next um, coffee for free. Uh, who doesn't think that that's just a better and more interesting way to do what you're already doing today with uh, collecting badges in their rewards program. So Commissioner Pham, you are absolutely in the right room right now because this is uh, one of our favorite topics at ARC on the brainstorm, uh, this movement uh, into the metaverse and 
the, the idea that gaming behavior, it, it kind of starts in gaming and it will expand in, into the future to the point where, you know, our daughters are in Roblox and it's kind of like the mall used to be uh, where they're, they're, they're hanging out and communicating. And it's interesting because Kathy and I uh, talk a lot about mythical, full disclosure, disclosure we're investors. And um, so John Linden, the CEO, has done studies on the game, the NFL Rivals game, and the behavior, even though there's a blockchain uh, architecture backing it and backing the mechanics, the player's behavior is identical to the behavior in traditional games. It's buying, selling, it's it's trading with your friends, it's showing items to just demonstrate your identity and your social capital. So it's everything you said. It truly is a utility. Um, so it's it's great to hear a regulator understand that. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, not just the customer engagement or the fun and games of, of gaming or sports, but actually, you know, my, my father and my brother are both doctors. Let's think about digital twins. So who hasn't liked to play, um, you know, everybody had that board game, I think, Operation, right? So that was a board game. And then, you know, there are video games where you can, you know, pretend to be a surgeon and you're doing surgery. But now with the technology that we have and with using, uh, you know, VR and AR, you can actually have surgeons learning the skills that they need to do real surgeries on real people, but using these virtual technologies. And so, you know, that is a, a true benefit to human uh, education, learning, to society. And I think that's where people need to understand that there's also the, the scientific, the medical, the educational, the design and engineering aspects of the technology as well. And I think both of those examples, the gaming and the medical example, um, the people using them or engaging in these activities don't even really know that there's a blockchain infrastructure backing them up. That's when you know you're onto something big, right? Um, I do have a, a, a quick question. Uh, it, it, it's something we I remember you mentioning the last time we saw you, and uh, and and it was trade finance um, uh, as as you know, a form of alternative financing, bringing in uh, digital assets. Have you have you evolved your thinking there, um, Commissioner? Well, since I no longer work at a bank and have all of the fantastic business heads and product development teams uh, and legal teams, importantly, the legal teams with me, um, I have not been able to further explore that. But one of the things, again, when we think about commercial activities, and this is where, again, you have that intersection, right? So if you think about the commercial activities and you think about uh, credit and financing for commercial activities, a very traditional banking activity, of course, um, the credit creation function of banks. Uh, that's where I think actually a lot of the ways that people are thinking about uh, engaging um, in the digital asset space probably falls more in the banking world versus the securities world. You know, securities are a very specific type of capital formation. I would say probably bank lending is much older, I think, than securities markets. And so I think that is something that should be further explored. And of course, you know, in my previous uh, work that I used to do, uh, the central banks, of course, are thinking and looking at this. The BIS, I spoke at a very interesting regulation of big tech conference uh, in Basel uh, last year. And so that's where I think a lot of the thought leadership is going to be in some of these these new and interesting activities. But I think I'll bring it back to something that you heard me say at that conference at Christie's, which is that, you know, in this field, people always ask me for advice. I can't give anybody any advice, but I would say that 90% of it 
is what your parents told you. Don't lie. Don't cheat. Don't steal. The other 10%, you need a really good security lawyer. <laughs> That's interesting. You mentioned Basel and, and Davos. So you're out there um, and, and really taking a closer look at what others are saying and how other countries are handling this. Um, do you expect that uh, uh, those examples to influence what happens here in the United States? Absolutely. The United States has the largest share of the global economy. We have the reserve currency of the world. There is no way that even though we are the largest that we can ignore what is happening out there, especially when you consider um, our export markets, but also imports. And so if you think about it that way, and this kind of comes back to the question that Angie asked me earlier, then what is the appropriate regulation and, and laws and regulators for commercial activity? Well, it's the ones that regulate when you go to a used car dealership and you want to buy a car that is not a lemon or, you know, the regulations that apply, the laws that apply when, again, you're on Amazon or you're on eBay or you're doing any other kind of e-commerce or any other type of marketplace. So that's where, whether it's international trade, commercial, data, IP, I think IP is a huge part of this. I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned there. I actually think a lot of the learnings in the peer-to-peer space, you can go all the way back to the days of Napster and how did people think about regulating what then later turned into the sharing economy, which seems so natural now, and also the gig economy. So these kinds of technological innovations that are are further connecting us and bringing us together and creating new revenue streams, new ways for cash flow, and new ways to empower and grow wealth across all levels and all aspects of society. I think those are the things that we should be understanding that we do not want to stifle this innovation that powers real and meaningful commercial activity and economic growth. So in the United States, um, many of these types of commercial activities are actually overseen by the Federal Trade Commission. I think there they have some very powerful anti-fraud and enforcement powers. I think that there is certainly a a bigger role for them to play uh, when we start looking at digital assets in the non-financial use cases or in the commercial space. Um, And when you look at countries around the world, what have they gotten right that we are still sort of swirling around, stuck debating in in this kind of uh, Mobius loop in the United States? Well, they have understood that digital assets and blockchain technology can have both financial and non-financial use cases, and they have a comprehensive legal and regulatory framework that allows for both. And importantly, there are definitions for utility token in many of these other jurisdictions. And so, oh, okay, well, now we know that this is utility token. It's not a financial instrument or product. It's not a security. These are the laws and regulations that apply. And therefore, These different industry sectors, whether gaming, whether science, whether consumer, whether media, sports, what have you, they're able to to develop and deploy these technologies without worrying about running afoul of the law. As I know, all investors as well as uh, businesses understand, breaking the law is not good business. And that's a really quick way to destroy value. Yeah, I'll just ask uh, one more question, kind of in that realm. Uh, I didn't hear about the Lockheed uh, Filecoin um, uh, deal. And I do find that very interesting that a, a big industrial uh, uh, company dependent on the government in many ways is, um, is using Filecoin uh, and finding it useful. So that's, that's actually very hopeful. Yes, I think it's so interesting because it's, again, 
what their project is around decentralized storage and the fact that you can have decentralized storage and all of the opportunities that it brings up. So uh, one of the comments that I made during my fireside chat there was that I had just been recently sort of rewatching and binging all of the seasons of Silicon Valley. And that's what that show was from 2014 to 2020. And I said, oh my gosh, they were talking about building a decentralized internet in this show. Is this uh, an example of life imitating art or you know, who were the consultants on the show? You know, what, what's, were they just really on to something ahead of, ahead of all of us? And then after I gave my fireside chat, one of the, uh, one of the um, senior executives at Filecoin Foundation came up to me and said, yes, one of the consultants on Silicon Valley is also a professor at Stanford and is involved in, I think, various VC activities, then went on to actually found the Filecoin Foundation to actually go and build you know, decentralized storage and decentralized internet. So, uh, you know, these ideas have been around for a long time, but finally the technology and I think the capital is there to drive that innovation. What's so interesting about it is I remember, uh, and this is when Chris Berniski and, and Joel Manero were working together on a project These that Chris had been at ARC. Uh, one of the first uh, one of the first coins they studied was file or organizations foundations they studied was Filecoin, and I remember Union Square Ventures uh, made an investment in it, and I really haven't heard much about it since. Which, uh, again, it's not exactly in our sweet spot, but it is so nice to see that come full circle in such a big way. And that's where I think a lot of people uh, write these articles where they say tokenization is over or tokenization is failing or, you know, there's been so much hype and promise in the technology, but it's failing to deliver. Again, I was watching another show at night when I'm reading things. I like to have TV on in the background. I was watching another show that was showing that um, the Internet and computers were being developed in, I think, the 50s and the 60s. But we didn't get a personal handheld smartphone computer in our hands until what in the 2000s with the creation of the iPhone. So if it took, you know, 50 years or so to develop computing to that level, why are we in such a rush to declare something as over when it's only been maybe five years since you've really had a huge influx of capital into the space? Maybe we're too impatient. Absolutely. It's so interesting. And just on that point, as you know, I'm in Hong Kong right now and I'm, I'm at a a classroom-based educational program for developers um, who are building on Substrate and in the Polkadot community. And um, it's it's really interesting. Well, first of all, I'm going to, I'm going to be giving a session tomorrow on what developers and uh, startup founders should think about from a regulatory perspective. So I'm going to quote you. That's okay. Don't lie. Don't cheat. And hire a great security lawyer. <laughs> but what I was going to say about, um, just to continue on the, the earlier uh, discussion on international is there's so much excitement and momentum it feels like through this downturn in Asia and uh, and you mentioned you were in Davos and it feels like um, yes that the, we've we've been in this kind of crypto downturn and yes there's been a lot of negative press but the building has continued just to give you a number here um, I just spoke to to the gentleman who who vets the applicants for this this developer program and he said they didn't really change that much I said how much were they down during you know during how much uh, were applications down during the downturn he said no they weren't that they weren't down that much 
This technology is inevitable. And um, I'd love for you to comment on the role that these international, um, you know, kind of rulemaking bodies could have, because at least in Asia, it feels like there's been a lot of momentum the last couple of years. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I think it's so exciting to go to Asia, because I feel like you're getting a glimpse into the future, just as far as digital adoption um, or the embrace of innovation uh, by the everyday uh, person. So, um, you know, when I would go over there and look at, for example, the consumer financial services businesses, and they were doing, again, payments with QR codes uh, way, way, way before uh, the, the United States was even contemplating those kinds of things. So look, um, the United States has uh, a leadership role in the different international organizations like the, the FSB, the Financial Stability Board, um, IOSCO, the International Organization of Securities Commissions, um, the Basel Committee, which is under the, the BIS. And uh, Treasury has been, you know, doing a lot of very thoughtful um, work in the space, as, as has the Fed and the other bank regulators. And so I do think that there's a tremendous amount that's going on behind the scenes. Um, and of course, you know, in the United States, unfortunately, it's become a very emotional conversation and debate where it's become almost this battle between good and evil. And I just don't understand how technology is supposed to be good or evil. Again, everyone's talking about AI. AI is a tool that can be used to enhance human productivity. AI in and of itself intrinsically is neither good nor evil. It's a tool. Technology is a tool. So I think in other countries, in, in other jurisdictions, there isn't that same emotional lens or overlay. There's no good versus evil. It's just technology. And why not study it and use it and see if you can deploy it, if it's going to um, you know, make sense for, for you and your clients, your stakeholders, your investors, what have you. Uh, so I think that's an important distinction. But because the United States is part of all these international bodies, these international standards that are being set. So for example, last year, the FSB came out with the crypto asset principles. Uh, IOSCO has been doing a series of consultations to provide um, principles for then its member countries to then go and implement through their own regulators. Uh, the United States has committed to adhering to these international standards. So eventually it will come. And I do think in many respects, you're actually going to see maybe the regulatory clarity uh, besides the courts, but coming uh, from, from the international, from the outside to come back in, if that makes sense. Absolutely. It is so true that the technology shouldn't care. The technology uh, should truly be neutral. And um, and I think that that is one of the goals in in blockchain and crypto is to set it, set these networks up so that they're fair and truthful. And we don't need to, we can remove a lot of the amb ambiguity and emotion <laughs> that comes when, uh, you know, we need to worry about it. We need to care. The technology can take care of a lot of it. Absolutely. And look, obviously, we've all experienced technology in our everyday lives. I think e-commerce is a great example of that. People used to say, well, who is going to want to buy something over the internet when they can't pick it up and touch it and feel it in a store? And yet, you know, I'll say during COVID in particular, where would we have been if we had not had e-commerce during COVID when you had these criminal and civil quarantine requirements? So I think that's just an example of even in just, you know, a 
fairly short period of time, maybe 20 years, you've seen a huge shift in how we go about our, our day-to-day lives and in the delivery of, of goods and services. And in financial services as well, technology is no stranger. Think about innovations. So in markets, of course, I, I liken the tokenization of uh, real assets as similar to when we had the electronification of markets. So we moved from you know open outcry pit trading to trading on electronic screens. And so again, does it matter what is the infrastructure stack underneath what you're doing? If this is a more efficient way to do middle and back office reconciliations, to you know minimize settlement risk, uh, to have the uh, release of capital that um, is pledged as collateral, these are all just innovations in markets. And um, I'm sure that when people went from think about doing. Uh, banking when you went to your branch and you had your savings passbook and now you can do online banking or mobile banking. Think about the credit card. Think about the ATM machine. Innovation is part of life and it's nothing to be scared of. Yeah. Well, it's just, it's incredible to talk to you every single time because you have so much experience both in financial markets and in real world use cases. You think about companies, you think about industry and how things work in a very practical way. So thank you so much for sharing your insights here on ARC FYI. We really, Kathy and I are overjoyed to have you after meeting you and hearing you speak at the Christie's Tech Conference. Uh, It's taken a while, but we got you on the show and we're really happy and we hope that we'll be able to have you back soon. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And I think there's some exciting things to happen this year and next. Thank you so much, Commissioner Pham. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.